Hello, friends. We're back of episode 110 of the Our Weekly Highlights podcast. My name is Eric Nance, and amid a bit of chaos, as always, in my life, we're here for another episode, but I cannot do this without my awesome co-host, Mike Thomas. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We got some some good highlights here today. A uh, little bit of a hectic week as well over here, but all, all is good. No, no real complaints. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I've had some interesting adventures, ironically, with some work for Art Weekly itself, which we may touch on at the end here. I've been down quite a few rabbit holes, but Mike, you always appreciate the rabbit holes I go on there because I think you and I are cut from the same cloth, so to speak. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So oh, I got rabbit holes for you as well. <laughs> oh, awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. Well, the issue is not a rabbit hole, but if it is, it's in a good way, of course, because our curator this week, has been Tony Elhabar, who's been doing a tremendous job as always. And he had tremendous help from our iWiki team members and contributors from around the world. We're going to start off with, I guess you could classify this as a huge rabbit hole, of just how far can you go, so to speak? And what am I talking about? Well, R as a language has been around for, I think, over 20 years now. It is a long history. It's been well-documented it has its roots in academia to help with education and then slowly has taken the data science industry and statistics where now it's, you know, it's very prevalent today. That's why we do this podcast. Well, we also talk about, about reproducibility quite a bit on this show. And with that may be the case where let's say you have a script that you created a long time ago on a much older version of R. How would you go about rerunning that? Are you supposed to like grab a new computer and try to retrofit an old operating system on? That may be approach approach you could take. But the approach we're going to talk about today is using the technology that I've been a huge fan of recently, and that's container technology to make a very quick and you might say disposable way to try this stuff out without you know messing up your system along the process. Because you may not want to break your production system for this kind of stuff. But I'm going to be highlighting this uh, blog post by Dr. Chung Hong Chan, who is a senior researcher at GESIS, which I believe we've had one of his colleagues on a previous highlight, where in his blog post, he talks about just how far he could go with running as an old version of R as possible on container technology. So this is fundamentally based in Docker, which has been the one that gets the most mind share in terms of replicating the container system on Linux hosts. You first may want to ask, well, let's say I have a recent version of a container that's based on an operating system in Linux, typically Ubuntu. How far can we go with that? Well, there are some versions that you might think would work there but end up do not. Even the versions of our version 3.x and up, or I should say and before, they're not going to work on today's versions of Ubuntu and the parent distribution Debian. This gets to a lot of the internals of what comprises R, which is a lot of C code behind the scenes, which you as an R user probably don't have to touch. But as languages like C are updated, standards are updated, Older versions may not necessarily compile with the latest and greatest in your operating system. So that means the journey begins. 
The nice thing about Docker is that you don't have to use the latest versions of a Linux distribution to use your base container on. You can go much older. So first, Dr. Chan goes to an older, what we call long-term support release of Ubuntu 1604. He found that in his container, he can still compile at least a slightly older version of R, version 2.7. And where did that come from? Or what year did that come from? 2008. That's quite a bit of ways already. So just where can we go after that? So with that long-term support release of Ubuntu 16.04, Dr. Chan was able to install version 2.5 actually, which was dated in 2007. But guess what? Anything older than that, same issues are compiling. So what's the next step? Can we go even deeper? Most people would probably want to stop there because most of the time we hear more recent versions of R being used in production, but this is now for the sake of science, as Dr. Chan will say, just how far can we go? Well, you can actually get a much older version of Ubuntu that came out in 2010 that was coded 10.04, where if you do a little hacking on where it gets its packages for installing Linux packages, you could get a slightly older version of R. But even then, you cannot go much farther back than version 2.5, unfortunately. So where do we go again? Do we go for another older version of Linux? Well, yes, you can. You can go to even older versions by using a little bit of maybe some security no-nos by using an outdated Linux distribution that's not fully supported by security updates anymore. So kids, don't try this at home unless you really know what you're doing, as Dr. Chan. More importantly, don't try this at work. <laughs> yeah, that, that actually, yes, thank you. Thank you, Mike. That's probably the more apropos statement here. Maybe do it at home. Don't do it at work. But yes, there are some different repositories for these Linux images that you can use to get more what he calls ancient versions of Ubuntu and Debian and the like. And when you go really far back to these very old versions of Ubuntu, then you are actually able to get this compile R version 1.3.1. That is amazing. A version one release of R can actually run in today's container technology. Would you ever wanna do that? I'm not sure. Because if you do really want to try the example containers that Dr. Chan has put on his blog post here, you're going to notice some things that you might take for granted in your daily R code writing that don't quite work the way you expect, such as something we take for granted, using snake case in your variable names. Guess what? It's not going to do what you expect. It's actually going to use that underscore as an operator of sorts and not actually make a variable that had the snake case inside. I'm laughing because I had no idea that was an issue back then because to make me feel a little younger, at least, I started using R back when it was version two. So there's that. Uh, so I never had the, the underscore issue happen in my exploits back in the early days. But there are some other great links that Dr. Chan points to of others that have gone down this similar rabbit hole. 
In fact, there was a great presentation that's linked in the blog post by Roger Bivand about using wine, which is not, we're not drinking here on this podcast. We're talking about wine that helps you emulate Windows programs on a Linux host that with a version of wine, he could get our version 1.0 actually compiled on a modern Linux distribution. Good grief. That's crazy to me. But then there's a link to another uh, project called the Archaeology Project that said that, hey, you could actually compile that very old version of R, 1.0.1, on Debian Woody, which is known as Debian 3.0 in the Linux distribution area. And that you could do in Docker. So you wouldn't have to necessarily go through some of the hoops that Dr. Chan went through if you really want to just try that, getting that old version up and running. Like I said, interesting exercise. Will you be doing this? I have no idea. But if you want to, it's there. And it's just another great use case for just how far you can go combining R with a SADR Linux concept. So Mike, did you want to go down this rabbit hole too? I was going to say, speaking of rabbit holes that you'd enjoy, Eric, I felt like this one, uh, I was worried about you when I saw this blog post come across. I wasn't sure if you were going to try to go uh, reproduce what Dr. Chan had done just, or, or see if you could go even further back in time. But it was it was pretty funny that every time Dr. Chan would get an old version of R up and running successfully, finally, it's like, oh, now let's do an older version. <laughs> so he has, a, he has a quote in the blog where he says, while I was sleeping, I wondered, can I go deeper? That's like every single time. And it's 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 pretty wild to see that some of the oldest versions of R that Dr. Chan was able to get up and running didn't even have, you know, how different the functionality is. Like I, I think maybe it was a an early 2.0 version or maybe a late 1.0 version um, that didn't have the session info function. And it made me start to wonder, like, how was anything reproducible? back then because obviously this is long before docker existed this is long before the rn package or, or packrat packages existed and i think even before github in a lot of cases um so it, it, i guess back when people used to send tarballs back and forth on uh the <laughs> r email list and things like that so this was this is a, a wild post just to, to watch a very unique post as well to see how far back um dr chan could could go with versions of R and honestly, I guess a good testament to how easy it was to try this exercise with Docker instead of like having to go into my dad's attic and grab an old compact machine or, or something <laughs> like that and try <laughs> and, and try to uh, install it on, on old hardware. It's pretty cool that we have Docker so we can do fun things like this. Uh, if this is something that you consider, consider fun, it, I am glad that Dr. Chan took the initiative to do this and uh, I wasn't tasked for it, but it, it was really cool to see sort of all the, the stumbling blocks that he was able to overcome to get these versions of R up and running in terms of compilation and things like that. And the, the syntax from those, those one point whatever 1.x versions is just wild to look at uh, with the underscores being some sort of operator um pretty crazy pretty crazy but very very cool and if you are an r geek like the, the two of us are or a nostalgist um 
definitely go check it out. And also archaeology is a phenomenal name for a project <laughs> that tries to go back in time in R. I thought that was a riot. Yeah, they, they, they got their name branding uh, down pat there <laughs> with that project. It did remind me, I actually still have the laptop that I use in graduate school. So maybe I will actually try to throw an ancient Linux on it now that I've been exposed to just how deep we can go. Oh boy, I feel like I've unleashed a, a beast inside me for Linux geekdom and reproducibility once again when I read this. But needless to say, it was thoroughly enjoyable by people like me and I'm sure others in the community that have been looking at ways where we can use modern tech to get back to maybe some of the older tech. It's a great way to tie that together. So really fun stuff. Now we're going to go a little modern, so to speak, way, way modern, because I can tell you a package that probably will not run on our version one, and that's dplyr. Don't try, folks. It ain't going to work. But luckily, dplyr works tremendously well on modern versions of R, and in particular, dplyr had a very substantial update to dplyr version 1.1.0, which you've heard a little bit of commentary from us on in previous episodes of our weekly, but now it is officially out. This is not a preview anymore. It is now officially on CRAN. And our issue alone has three separate blog posts from the Tidyverse team on new features in dplyr 1.1. And we're going to highlight a particular one by Davis Vaughn, who's a software engineer on the Tidyverse team at Posit, talking about some massive improvements to how joins operate in dplyr. So of course, for those that aren't aware, joins are the functions that give you that SQL-like approach to merging data sets together. Typically, you'll do something like a left join. In fact, that's always one I use the most. I got my, data, my master data frame on the left, and I want to join an ancillary data frame on the right. Left join always makes that happen. Well, there's always been something that's been kind of a little awkward in some of the syntax of this. And that would be no matter which join function, if you have that by argument, and then you say which variables are going to be the same across the data set. But if they had different names, it was always a little awkward to get that syntax right. Well, now they've added a very nice helper function called join by that will make the syntax a lot easier. And the example in the blog post has a very small set of data, but it illustrates the points quite easily. Where now, if you have these two data sets that have company metadata in the example, you can use the join by function and put both variable names of the variable that has the common trait in the same syntax with a double equal sign instead of a single equal sign. So the post goes into more detail, but it just underscores some of the improvements that I think didn't really expose their need until many people got their hands on dplyr like they have over the years. And that's a nice little quality of life enhancement. Other quality of life enhancements have to do with the situation where maybe you were expecting not multiple records to be added to your your uh, joint data frame, but now dplyr will warn you if it encounters that case so that you can figure out for yourself, was that intentional or should I suppress that? Or should I have an error 
if that occurs. So there will be a lot more flexibility in dealing with multiple records that occur in these different joins. And then other types of joins, one that I think um, is also going to be very helpful is dealing with inequality joins as well. And that's where that's actually getting to the point of multiple records. Now, in the example that they have in the blog post, if you have the same company, if you will, like our studio changing the name deposit, it's going to be able to let you be very directed about how that join should occur, whether it's based on another variable being greater than a certain amount and the like. So it's going to help you be a little more assertive, a little more specific on how to control how these joins operate. There are quite a few others that are documented in the post, such as rolling joins and joins where we don't have the exact match when rows are not being matched, how you might deal with those situations. So again, lots of good things, I think, especially if you're doing these operations in more of an automated setup, maybe it's using the same operations, but on snapshots of data, where now you can be explicit to tell dplyr, hey, if you see multiple records or if you see records that aren't matching, stop in your track so that we can diagnose it. So they've really exposed some really nice uh, functionality, I think that makes this operation even more robust and helps it get a step closer to maybe your friends over in the database world that have all the tricks they can muster with SQL joins and the like. Now with dplyr, you get a lot more flexibility in that regard as well. Again, this issue has a lot more about dplyr, but yeah, the join improvements are definitely massive and very welcome to the updates here. Lots of updates, I guess, to, to dplyr, right? And, and one of them uh, in this version 1.1.0 release is the, the join syntax and the new functionality that we have for joining. And joining can be hard intuitively. Like it, it sounds easy, but I, I think it can be difficult for, for people to think about it. It requires thought. It requires understanding your data. It requires understanding uh, the physical logic that you want to encapsulate in your code. It requires understanding the data model and the relationship between the two tables that you're trying to join. And I think that these join improvements in dplyr 1.1.0 make you or force you to have to state what you want more explicitly than what we had previously. And I think that is the, the real argument for um, these improvements, for these changes. And I definitely uh, agree with, with the updates and the improvements here. Um, like you said, there's a new join by function from dplyr, which you would supply to the by argument of any dplyr, you know, inner join, outer join, left, right join function. Um, it's always felt a little awkward specifying the join criteria in the dplyr join verbs. Because you're passing variable names as strings most of the time, you're using just a single equal sign. Um, and both of those things sort of contrast the rest of the tidy evaluation ecosystem of functions, right? And like you said, we're also now getting inequality joins, which I know is a big item that's been on the roadmap for a while. I think that's been pretty highly requested. Um, rolling joins as well. And more explicit behavior, like you said, over how to handle multiple matches or instances of unmatched rows. There's this new multiple argument, I believe, that you can specify as either warning, error, or, or um, quiet, or something like that. So 
nice. Uh, I, I think these improvements are, are great in terms of, uh, you know, allowing us to specify sort of what we have in our head for how this join criteria should work into the code that we're writing. And I am excited to uh, install DeepLayer 1.1.0 and get started myself. Yeah, I can see this being very helpful as I get into projects where I don't have as much domain knowledge as others in the group, and I'm not going to always know the ins and outs of what I should expect in these joins. But with the new version of DeepLayer, I can at least tell my session to be very explicit to me if things go even just a hint of unexpectedness, so to speak. So I am interested in trying it out. And what you said about being explicit, remind me of another design principle um, around another very important package to me, at least in the Tidyverse, and that's PER, where if you're being explicit about how you want the iteration to occur and what your return value will be, then you can be more prospective on perhaps catching some really show-stopping issues that could occur that might be a little more silent, so to speak, when you use the L applies and the like. So again, everybody's preference differs, but I think it just underlines kind of the cohesiveness that the Tidyverse team is trying to put together with admittedly some very complex operations and iteration and join are definitely near the top of my list of what can be really complex really quickly. So Excellent write-up by Davis. And as I said, the example that's used throughout the post really hits home how these concepts are put together. And it, they could easily take the easy way out and just said, hey, we got these new joins and go go to the GitHub repo and read more. No, no, they put it front and center. I always appreciate that attention to detail because it takes time, folks. These These posts don't just vanish out of thin air. There's a lot of time spent on documentation and I've been living that world myself where I'm documenting some things that I should have documented years ago, but better late than never, I guess. Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of pedagogy, I, I guess, that probably goes into publishing the documentation that you're going to release to the public and putting together the best possible example that you can to showcase uh, the, the functionality that you're trying to explain to folks. And, and like you said, I think this blog post does a great job of that. Yep. And along those thread of kind of documenting your journeys or documenting how you might, you know, go about certain areas. One aspect, especially in the community and data science in general, the last few years that I've seen a lot are these fun little challenges that are out there. Many are familiar with the advent of code that occurs at the end of every year where you get tasked with, you know, tackling a programming exercise in your favorite language of choice and seeing how you stack up in your solution compared to others in the community. Well, there's another one that's definitely for the visual fans out there. It's the 30 day map challenge that occurs near the end of the last couple of years. And in particular, our last highlight today is a comprehensive retrospective by Kenneth Wong, a geospatial data specialist, where he examines his 30 maps that he created in the 30-day map challenge that was at November of 2022. Now, as someone who absolutely would never have the talented chops to do even a quarter of what Kenneth does in these maps here, they're really powerful stuff. Kenneth uses a blend of multiple technologies to make it happen. But I did do a little investigation, so to speak, in some of these maps, and 
yes, there is some R involved. And in particular, he's had some blog posts in his recent, um, I should say, in his blog posts earlier in the year, where he talks about how he's been blending things like Shiny and Leaflet together to do some more custom operations that other software can do in the geospatial space. So Kenneth is definitely a very talented individual. And a lot of the maps we have here are a healthy mix of what we call as more informational maps that would be at home on any infographic or any blog post, and others that definitely could strike as more of an artistic feel. They each have their intricate design choices and really interesting choices that uh, Kenneth talks about, especially at the end of the post where he talks about the benefits and trade-offs of where he spends his time on the design phase and then actually implementing the solutions together. So I can't do it very much justice on audio, but there are definitely some eye-catching maps here across different domains and across different spectrums of data that he's trying to show here. Yes, it was so cool walking through all the different maps that Kenneth had made. And, and this 30-day map challenge, uh, for those who aren't familiar, is a, a daily social mapping project that takes place in November of each year. So we can look out for that this November as well, if you are a GIS data scientist or, or want to get into that space. Um, it looks like the challenge starts out kind of simple. You know, make a map with points on day one, make a map with lines on day two, um, but gets progressively more interesting. And in the 2022 challenge, they had some days with more creative topics such as uh, build a bad map or <laughs> um, build a map without a computer or build a 3D map. So very cool stuff. Um, they have one of my favorite code of conduct statements as well, uh, which says, don't be an ass. <laughs> we can cut that if you want to, Eric. Uh, but uh, it literally says that right in the code of conduct. So you can only uh, participate in that challenge if you're going to meet that requirement. Kenneth tried to limit himself to a 15-minute layout design time each day, uh, but he struggled with this, admittedly, and that's totally understandable. I couldn't imagine having to limit myself uh, to, to 15 minutes of design time in, in just about anything that I do. Um, shiny, you know, data viz, whatever it may be. One of my favorite maps that he builds is an analysis of food to go chains in the UK from 2013 through 2021. And the result is a map, um, which actually is, is two maps. Um, but this is animated as a GIF, I presume, a GIF, I presume, <laughs> which shows the growth of stores of two chains, uh, a chain called Greg's and a chain called Pret. Um, and one really cool thing about this map is that it has a little call-out bubble that magnifies the city of London um, in the top right corner of the map. And the magnified section is animated in perfect sync with the rest of the map. So as dots get added to the rest of the map, dots get added uh, for, for each year, uh, they get updated in these call-out sections simultaneously. It's really, really stunning work. It really tells the story of what he's trying to convey really, really well. So I certainly appreciate that as a data viz nerd myself. And if you are similarly a data viz nerd, I don't think there's a better blog post than this one to just walk through and get, you know, 20 or so examples of, of great geospatial data viz work from Kenneth. Yep. And very inspiring too. Like if you want to get into the geospatial space and kind of see what is possible. Yeah. This is a great showcase of what's possible. So if I ever get that itch, maybe down the road, I can't say when, but maybe so. I'll definitely look back to this post to give me some ideas 
to see just how far I could take just an open source stack to how neat we can go here. Um, certainly, as I said, kind of blended multiple tech together. Now, I won't pretend to know the ins and outs of things like ArcGIS Pro or anything like that. But hey, you know, best tool for the job, right? So awesome, awesome blend as always. And speaking of great blends, well, you could say the R Weekly issue is a great blend of multiple domains, multiple tutorials, and awesome packages that are being shared with you each and every week. And so we're going to take a couple minutes here for our additional finds as well. And I'm going to put a spotlight somewhat related to our first highlight about the container rabbit hole, so to speak. But um, Dirk Edebutel, who's been a very big proponent of having maintainable, easy to install package repositories and as part of the leads of the Rocker project, um, has a great insightful post on just the differences that we can see in runtime and installation time between two packages that do the same thing, but have different dependency footprints. And so this isn't a matter of who's right or wrong here. This is just a, some good food for thought, so to speak, on the benefits and trade-offs of certain choices as you think about the dependency for your project. So great data-driven insights that Dirk has on his post that if, especially if you're doing R in any continuous integration setup, you may want to look at so you can make your life easier and not have to wait for compile times all the time when you're building that next regression pipeline. I found a post by Stephen Royal, who's the author of the Quantized blog. I believe that's how it's pronounced, but the the uh, Z that you hear in that is actually an X. So quant, I-X-E-D, which is a blog I hadn't come across before, but looks like a phenomenal resource. Um, it's, it's a great blog this week on building a Mastodon bot. So I thought this was pretty timely considering the uh, paywall that's going up uh, above the R, or excuse me, above the Twitter API and uh, is going to impact packages like our tweet. Um, I guess unless you're willing to pay for that API key, but I believe for Mastodon, that is a free API still at this point. So shout out Mastodon. Um, and Steven uses R to draft the post that he wants to post to Mastodon and then uses Python to post it. So I thought it was a pretty cool bilingual, if you will, blog post and uh, really interesting to see how he was able to post an image with some alt text on it, as well as a, you know, a, a message around that image in his post, uh, all in a fairly condensed uh, amount of R and Python code. So a great one if you are somebody who likes to build bots or programmatically uh, post to your favorite social media sites, and that includes Mastodon, then this one would be for you. Yeah, if there was ever an indication that maybe, yeah, it's time to modernize our, our infrastructure for things like the ways we will let users quickly submit a new uh, story for our weekly with Twitter. Yeah, the recent events are definitely that that little nudge, politely, so to speak. And yeah, this great, this is an excellent post. And you better believe me and the rest of the our weekly team are going to be taking a close look at this as we think about how to leverage our Mastodon infrastructure even more so than we do already. The building blocks are there. Now it's just need some dev time. And speaking of dev time, this little um, our weekly related rabbit hole I've been under, which doesn't have a whole lot to show for it to you and the general audience. But, you know, we have a, you know, pretty decent chunk of curator on, curators on the team. We have about six or 
seven of us. And it can be a lot to manage to figure out, okay, who's got this week? Who's our backup and everything like that. So I personally, I don't have much to show for it yet, but stay tuned in a future episode. I have been integrating R and Python and a shared calendar to make an automated way of hosting our curation calendar. This has been, uh, this post that you just talked about, Mike, remind me exactly of some of the things I've been dealing with, with blending the two languages and the iCal standard, which is not intuitive to me in the least, but thankfully others have built packages to at least smooth out some of the rougher edges. But uh, I'm not going to say how many hours I spent on this because I don't want to embarrass myself too much. But this has been uh, an interesting exercise that I hope I can take learnings into other projects where I blend multiple technologies together. So big respect for anybody who goes down these rabbit holes for sure. Absolutely. And I just did want to thank uh, Mael Salmon, at least, for her tweet uh, this past week thanking those involved in the R Weekly curation and, and podcast uh, development. So that means a lot to us that uh, you found it useful and uh, gives us the motivation to keep plugging on here. Yes, we love hearing that. And Mael is a great friend of ours, a former curator. So it's always great to, to hear from her again. And we love hearing from you as well. And we make it super easy to get in touch with us. Certainly you give us a shout on social media. We'll share our accounts shortly. But an even easier way, if you're listening to this on your favorite podcasting device, maybe it's a mobile phone or whatnot, just grab yourself a new podcast app such as Podverse or Fountain and get with the times, so to speak, because now it is super easy to get in touch with us directly in the app itself. That's called a Boostergram, and it's super easy to set up. We'll have links to how you can get one of these new podcast apps directly in the show notes, and we would love to hear from you. And we've had some great listener contributions already. Again, it's a great boost for us, no pun intended, as we continue this train going. As I can tell you, the R Weekly project team doesn't quite have the funds to fork over to uh, Twitter for keeping APIs up and running. So we're going to do it in the open source way. But your feedback definitely goes a, a big help along the way to make that happen. And where you can get in touch with us, well, I am, again, sporadically on Twitter with at the Rcast, but also I prefer you to give me a shout on Mastodon where I'm at our podcast at podcastindex.social. Mike, where can the listeners find you? Sure. Uh, I am on Mastodon as well at Mike underscore Thomas at Fostodon.org and on Twitter, if you're still over there at Mike underscore Ketchbrook, K-E-T-C-H-B-R-O-O-K. Very good. Very good. Yes. Well, that will... Give us a little wrap on episode 110. And as always, from wherever you are around the world, we thank you so much for listening and truly appreciate all the support you've been giving us, even nice shout outs and the like. And yeah, we'll be back with another edition of our weekly highlights next week.